morning, Bethel. Looks like it might be a holiday weekend. I don't know. Thank you. Yeah, good morning, some of Bethel. So, all right, well, if you turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2, the scripture reading for this morning is verses 15 to 25. So you can find um, that on page 2. In the Pew Bible, that should be pretty easy to find. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, if you don't have a Bible, um, there's one in the pew in front of you. So turn to page two, and if you wouldn't mind, please stand, join me in standing in honor of God's Word. Genesis chapter two, verses 15 to 25. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore... A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is God's word. You may be seated. Okay, well, it's good to be back with our church family, um, at least most of our family. Um, Ben's having a really tough morning. He, he couldn't really get out of bed this morning, so that's where Beth and, and Benjamin are. But we had a good vacation. We're thankful for it. Um, I listened to uh, Dr. Singer and Pastor Tyler's and Doc Huss's messages from the past three Sundays and just so thankful for these willing, gifted servants of God and His Word. I was encouraged and challenged by their messages from Genesis 22 and Ephesians 6 and Luke 9. And if you missed any of them, I encourage you to go to the website and and listen. They're really encouraging, all of them. Well, last Friday, let's say a week ago Friday, um, the Supreme Court of the United States found in a 5-4 decision that a state must license a same-sex marriage and must recognize a same-sex marriage licensed in another state. Okay, unless you had your head in the sand, this is not news to anyone. Okay, but that decision legalizes gay marriage in all 50 states and effectively redefines marriage for our entire country. 
So this decision certainly could lead to some real challenges for people of faith down the road. Um, Tax-exempt status. Certainly it's already affected some adoption agencies. There could be more of that um, impact on daycares. And there's all kinds of things that we could tease out. But even the dissenting Supreme Court justices pointed to some of the concerns that could be coming down the road. So let me just read you a few quotes from um, the opinion, the official summary of, of the case. So this is Justice Alito. Today's decision usurps the constitutional right of the people to decide whether to keep or alter the traditional understanding of marriage. The decision will also have other important consequences. It will be used to vilify Americans who are unwilling to assent to the new orthodoxy. In the course of its opinion, the majority compares traditional marriage laws to laws that denied equal treatment for African Americans and women. The implications of this analogy will be exploited by those who are determined to stamp out every vestige of dissent. He also said, I assume that those who cling to old beliefs will be able to whisper their thoughts in the recesses of their homes, but if they repeat those views in public, they will risk being labeled as bigots and treated as such by governments, employers, and schools. So that's not Fox News. That's one of the judges that said that. Chief Justice Roberts also had some significant things to say in his dissent. He said, Respect for sincere religious conviction has led voters and legislators in every state that has adopted same-sex marriage democratically to include accommodations for religious practice. The majority's decision imposing same-sex marriage cannot, of course, create any such accommodations. The majority graciously suggests that religious believers may continue to advocate and teach those are the words they use, their views of marriage. The First Amendment guarantees, however, the freedom to exercise religion. Ominously, that is not a word the majority uses. He also said, hard questions arise when people of faith exercise religion in ways that may be seen to conflict with the new right to same-sex marriage. When, for example, a religious college provides married student housing only to opposite-sex married couples, or a religious adoption agency declines to place children with same-sex married couples. Indeed, the Solicitor General candidly acknowledged that the tax exemptions of some religious institutions would be in question if they oppose same-sex marriage. There is little doubt that these and similar questions will soon be before this court. Unfortunately, people of faith can take no comfort in the treatment they receive from the majority today. So there's a lot more in the way of interesting quotes, and I'll, I'll leave it at that. Um, if you're interested, I can direct you to where to find um, some summaries of the opinion that's, that's helpful. So obviously the news outlets, the blogosphere have been full of reactions and commentary um, all over the place. Lots of, you know, heat on social media and so forth. Um, you can add to the media frenzy. Add to that the media frenzy over Bruce Jenner's transformation and the amount of polarizing and demonizing and lionizing that has resulted from all this is a bit dizzying. So I say all that to say, what, what's been your reaction over the past week or so? And I'm sure there's a range represented in the room here from maybe disgust and disdain to anger and exasperation to panic and worry to indifference and apathy. 
Maybe some of you silently or even openly rejoice in the decision. Might be some of you in that boat. And there certainly is a growing number of professing Christians who believe the Bible doesn't prohibit certain expressions of homosexual practice like monogamous gay marriage. So what was your reaction? Well, whatever your reaction, what we're going to consider this morning has important things to say to all of us, no matter what your reaction was. So we're going to look at one of the most important passages in the Bible about marriage, and it's Ephesians 5. So if you can turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 5, you can find it in the Pew Bible on page 978. And I'm going to read through the whole section here, Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. And then we'll dive in a little bit and, and unpack some of it. So, on the heels of saying... Look carefully how you walk there in verse 15, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Don't be foolish. Understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. When you're filled with the Spirit, things happen. You address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs like we've done this morning. You give thanks always and for everything to God the Father. And there's submission that happens one to another out of reverence for Christ And verse 22, so that 21 is like a hinge verse, and it leads right in, wives to your own husbands, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, quoting that Genesis 2.24 that we read a few minutes ago. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects respects her husband. So first point, marriage is a gospel issue. Okay, I'm I'm not going to go into a detailed exposition of this whole section, though I would encourage you to you know, carefully study, meditate on this rich section. Um, It's just filled with grace and truth. Um, It's so rich. 
But what I do want to focus on, what I do want us all to see and take note of is the fact that marriage has everything to do with the gospel. It's a gospel issue. It is not fundamentally a cultural or a social or even a human rights or a political issue. It's a gospel issue. Marriage, as God designed it, is about the gospel. That was God's intention from the beginning. So at the beginning of this section, obviously, if you, it's, it doesn't take much work to see that husbands and wives, Christian husbands and wives, their marriages are supposed to be little reflections. It's like a drama. It's like a dance. And there are roles to play. Christ and the church. Okay? So it's obvious that marriage is supposed to, supposed to be reflecting the truths of the gospel. That was God's intention from the beginning. And that's why the real shock comes in verse, verses 31 to 32. Paul quotes Genesis 2.24. He says, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Okay, so Genesis 2.24 ultimately, is not just about Adam and Eve. It's about Christ and the church. In other words, marriage was created to image forth, to reflect the ultimate marriage. All of human history is about a marriage. Marriage as a human institution was designed and created by God in order to tell a much greater story. So two becoming one, that is a profound mystery. And Paul says that the mystery refers to Christ and the church. Okay, so again, what does that mean? Maybe we know what that means. Maybe it's obvious. But again, the point is that all of human history, Paul's not just saying, hey, now I'm going to talk about marriage, and oh, it happens to have some correlation to Christ and the church. So, you know, you should make that connection. It's, it's much bigger than that. The point is not God made marriage back in Genesis 2.24, and then, hey, when it came time for Christ and the cross and then Paul to write his letters, God said, hey, Paul, this, you know, my sacrificial kind of love, you know, exercised in Christ, it's kind of like marriage. So I'm going to use marriage as an illustration. It's the other way around. God knew his loving plan for an eternal covenantal relationship with his people, and he made marriage to be a little scale model. So so the real marriage, the, the ultimate marriage is Christ and the church, and human marriage is made from the beginning to be a little living parable of that. So all of human history is about a marriage, and every Christian marriage is supposed to be a little pointer to say, there's a bigger story. This is huge. This is everything. So even pre-fall, this is all about the gospel. It's all about Christ and the church. So Adam and Eve, Adam was, was just there, and it wasn't good that he'd be alone. So God parades the animals. Obviously, there's no suitable helper with the animals, as much as he liked the one he called dog, okay? It just didn't fit very well. So God makes Eve from his own bone and flesh, gives her to him. But what ended up happening? They ended up buying 
the lies of Satan, and they were unfaithful to God. Okay? So there was infidelity from the very beginning. And as a result, death and guilt and shame enters. And that has been the pattern ever since. Okay? So in a sense, what Adam and Eve did, that was like cosmic adultery. It was unfaithfulness of the highest order. It was a refusal to embrace God's loving, you could say, husband rights over their lives, over his people. It was basically saying, we like your gifts, but we'd like to have you just kind of take a step back and get out of the way so that we can do it our way. And the wages of that kind of sin is death, obviously, just like God warned Adam. In the day you eat of it, you'll surely die. So that family, that loving relationship with God was severed that day. It died because Adam and Eve were willing to, in a sense, have an affair with a snake. So God could have said, well, to hell with you. But he is the perfect husband, perfectly loving and merciful. And so after so many centuries, you know, no human ruler could ever be good enough or strong enough or great enough to bring happily ever after, not even David, not even King David, and so much unfaithfulness through the ages, finally, the true king of kings, Jesus himself, comes, and he came to pursue his rebel bride. He came to die for his, his bride. And so when, when the incarnation took place, do you, know you know what God was saying? He did what it took so that Jesus could say to his bride, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. I will take on flesh and bone in order to make you mine, to make you my family, to win your allegiance again, okay? And this new covenant sealed by the blood of Jesus, which will be consummated when Jesus returns to make all things new, that was established. So that, that's the gospel, and that's what marriage is supposed to be reflecting, imaging forth. So the marriage of the ages is the original, capital O, and our marriages are supposed to be the copy, like a little child's crayon copy of an original, you know, beautiful work of art. So how does a little child learn how to, to draw and and put on paper reflection of that beautiful masterpiece. Well, the little child's got to keep its eye on the original, right? So Christ in the church is the original. The way that our marriages will reflect what they're supposed to reflect is if we keep our eyes on the marriage. So the gospel is the purpose of marriage. It's supposed to reflect that beautiful picture of God loving his people in amazing, contra-conditional ways. And the more that we see that, the more that we savor that, we will begin to embody that and our marriages will reflect it. So the marriage is the marriage, Christ in the church, is the perfect picture. And as we see it, as we believe it, as we just keep our eyes fixed on it, 
it's also the power for our marriages to reflect the picture. So it's the picture and it's the power. Do you see that? So God doesn't just say, hey, this is what it's supposed to look like. Get after it. Come on. He says, this is what it's supposed to look like. And the very thing it's supposed to look like is the power for it to look that way. So for instance, if you're a Christian, you know that you have been forgiven an infinite debt. Like Matthew 18, this this infinite death, you know, kingdom of heaven is like, you know, there's this servant and he had 10,000 talent debt, which is just an astronomical amount. And he said, have mercy on me. And his, his master wiped it all out. And it would just be so ugly and wrong and wicked for him to go and choke his servant for a couple months wages. And so if we, as husbands and wives, we're going to sin against each other, we're going we're to hurt each other, we're going to let each other down, but if you keep your eyes fixed on the perfect original, this amazing forgiveness that you've been issued in Christ that you don't deserve, this amazing contra-conditional love, this beautiful, it actually is the power. It's like God's hand on your hand as a little child helping you draw a little bit better, a little bit clearer, a little bit more beautiful picture of the original. So it's the picture, it's the power. Or, how about this? Oftentimes in the world, what, what is love like? It's kind of like, you know, I'll, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, or um, 50-50, or whatever it is. But gospel love is like I said, contra-conditional. It's not based on the performance of the other person. So how did Jesus love his bride? Well, he came after her when she was running the other way. So what if we keep our eyes fixed on the original? Do you think that that's how he's treated me? How could I lean back and keep my spouse on trial? What have you done for me lately? You must have your eyes somewhere else. Okay, so to fix your eyes on the original, the beautiful original that you're participating in by grace that you don't deserve is actually the power to begin to see our marriages shaped by the gospel. Okay, so marriage is a gospel issue. I hope that's abundantly clear from Ephesians 5. So what is marriage in the church? Let's say first the church, kind of in America. What does it say about the gospel? Listen to Russell Moore, a a very helpful voice during times like this. He's spoken out quite a bit um, recently in light of and prior to the Supreme Court ruling. Um, He's the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberties Commission. Okay, So he says, as we the church talk about marriage, we must not just articulate our views of marriage, we must embody a gospel marriage culture. We have done a poor job of that in the past. Too many of our marriages have been ravaged by divorce. Okay, so that's an important word as far as how are we going to respond. We need to first see that the marriage is all about the gospel, and we first need to look in. So let's not just look 
in, in the sense of looking out at, at the landscape of American church culture, let's look in at Bethel and let's just look in at our own marriages. Not so much around, but let's look in. What does your marriage say about the gospel? Is there gospel glory and gospel beauty radiating from your marriage? Is that your goal? Of course, that's a hard, that's a hard thing. You need supernatural grace for that. You actually need to live out what Pastor Tyler preached two weeks ago. If, if you think that this is going to be easy to have a marriage that's beautiful, you're crazy. There's a reason why Ephesians 6 follows Ephesians 5. Because if God invests marriage with that much glory, it's supposed to be a picture of the gospel. If God invests that much glory in marriage, you better believe the evil one's going to have his crosshairs on it. So we need to fight the good fight of the faith. We need to take up the full armor of God and, and fight for our marriages. Not just so that we will not divorce, although that's a good thing, but so that our marriages will be beautiful like the gospel's beautiful. So what does your marriage say about the gospel? Is your marriage a parable of the gospel or is it a parody? Our marriages, each and every one of them are going to say something. So have you become way too comfortable with your indifference and apathy toward the message of your marriage, the message, what your marriage is saying? Are you way too comfortable with the bitterness maybe or the resentment or the disdain or just the distance you just, that seeped in? You've just grown comfortable with it? How do we respond to some of these things? You know, you could think we're going to, well, let's just talk about lobbying. and No, let's look in and say, what do our marriages look like? What are we praying for? Even if you're not married, what are we praying for? Wouldn't it be wonderful if the marriages in the church just in Delaware, even northern Delaware, I mean, I think we should pray bigger than that, but just our church in this area, what if it was just, man, those, I don't agree with those people. They seem narrow-minded to me, but boy, their marriages sure are sweet. There's just something about their, the love of those marriages. It's just beautiful. So how about fighting for something that matters, even if your spouse doesn't reciprocate, because the gospel is at stake. And I know there are some of you that are in some really challenging, I'm speaking generally here, it obviously applies to individuals, but I, I can't qualify and nuance every, every situation, okay? But the gospel is at stake in your life and posture and attitudes and actions, regardless even of how your spouse response, because marriage is about the gospel, okay? So we can point the finger at the perversion and parody of so-called same-sex marriage, but we have fingers pointing back at us in the church. Are our marriages gospel beautiful? Is that what we're after? Is that what we're fighting for? Is that what we're praying for? 
We share this with all of our pre-marriage counseling couples. You don't want to just get the roles right. You want to have such a sweet marriage by the grace of God that what you live out actually vindicates publicly the wisdom of God and His design. Don't you want that? Don't you want that for your kids? Don't you want that? Like, if you walk through the halls, like on Wednesday night during the school, a bunch of little wanna kids, like praying, Lord, they're going to grow up in a culture where normal is so different from what was normal for me, and there's going to be so many different, you know, temptations and ditches for them to fall into. Please. First, we may need to repent of where our marriages are at. You might need to pursue some marriage counseling. Great, let's do it. For the sake of the gospel, for the glory of Christ, fight for it. But we all need to pray. And don't just pray for political winds to shift. Pray for your marriage or your singleness or your sexuality, all of it, to glorify God and be beautiful and winsomely attractive and otherworldly. And please do pray that for our teens and for our kids. Okay, so how do we respond? We don't need to panic, fear, you know, overflow with this unrighteous anger. We don't need to demonize our opponents or people that disagree, be alarmist. Okay, maybe, maybe one application from this, this morning's message is read a little less or, or watch a little less Fox News and read a little more your Bible. God's still on the throne. He hasn't changed. He's sovereignly in control, yes, even of the United States. So the decision, we could go Friday, didn't catch him off guard. We can trust him, be confident in his sovereignty. The gospel's still true. And with a sovereign loving God on the throne of the universe, there's always opportunity. There's opportunity here with every threat, every obstacle. There's gospel opportunity here. In fact, the darker things get, the more impact the light can have. So how do we respond? Let's refuse fight or flight, okay? Instead, and this is where it's just real practical in a sense, it's a, a simple point from Ephesians 5 and then application. How do we respond? Not fight or flight, but conviction and kindness, okay? So point number two, conviction. We must not deny Christ. So the question is, do you believe Ephesians 5? I mean, really believe it, like down to your bones. Do you believe that the Bible is God's inspired, infallible, inerrant, authoritative word? It's real practical. You are going to get asked what you believe. Maybe you already have been multiple times in the past nine days. You're going to be in conversations, family conversations, at work, in your neighborhood, at the pool. What are you going to do? Are you going to just try to avoid the subject? Are you going to just dance? Are you going to defer? Are you going to turn to Mark 8? I want, to, I want us to hear the words of Jesus in the light of some of these present challenges because we need conviction. Mark 8, 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus said to them, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. 
but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? And then listen how he closes this. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So I think probably most of us in the room are kind of feeling guilty of how we've backpedaled and soft-pedaled and, you know, been silent or whatever. Are you ashamed yet of your shame? Have you taken that to Jesus? Strengthen me. I want to have conviction. I don't want to deny you. Are you, in, are you fighting those impulses to deny Jesus, to be ashamed of him? We live in some crazy days. I mean, if, if we just put our finger to the wind, we're going to be loved one day, hated the next with pretty much any issue. I mean, have we lived long enough to see how fickle public opinion is? We must not take our cues from public opinion. Now, I say this very soberly, and I'm I'm definitely not trying to be chicken little even in addressing this this morning or alarmist. these These are spiritual warnings. Let me just say this, though. This could very well be the gateway to falling away for some. Maybe some of us. I hope not. May may it not be. See, the rich young ruler came to Jesus and he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus knew his heart and he touched on the right nerve when he said, go sell what you possess, give to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven, come follow me. Now, does, does someone have to sell their stuff and give it away in order to earn salvation? to kind of earn the ticket, buy the ticket. No, Jesus knew what he loved, what he trusted. It was money, it was his God. So that command, it was a call to faith and it exposed where his trust was. Well, this could be it for us. It's just too costly to follow Jesus on this one. There could be some serious backlash at work. I I could even lose my job, I could lose my friends. Things could get really awkward with the neighbors. I I could face stigma and labeling. We've got to get over our slavish desire to be liked by everyone. We can't cave, soft pedal, compromise. The church is always called to be a countercultural community. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. And that was right on the heels of Jesus saying, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So I think I read this somewhere. I can't remember where, but we weren't promised the culture would be on our side. In fact, we were promised the opposite. Jesus said in John 15, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. That's hopeful. People can change and hear the gospel and say, yes, I want to follow Jesus. 
So cultural pressure, pressure will, will most likely only increase. So how will we do in the face of that wind? Are we going to just duck and hide? Are we going to turn and go with the flow? Or are we, going to, are, are we going to be conformed to this world? Or are we going to be transformed by the renewing of our minds? So we need to be people of the book, not denying Christ, but people of conviction. We need to pray. We need to pray for our own hearts that we will be full of humble, word-soaked, spirit-formed, Jesus-following conviction. And then pray for others, brothers and sisters, especially the folks in your home group, including the kids and the teens, that this kind of conviction would mark us, characterize us. Okay, do we really believe in the authority of God's Word? We're going to get to it eventually in our Isaiah series. Isaiah 66, 2. This is the one to whom I will look. He was humble and contrite and trembles at my word. Not sitting in judgment over it, but humbly receiving it. Otherwise, we're going to just drift into designer religion. We're going to drift into this cut-and-paste Christianity. I like this part, but not that part. That's not Christianity. Jesus is Lord. Let's follow him. Any amens to that? I don't know. Anybody? <laughs> Listen to Kevin DeYoung, another, another helpful voice um, in, this, uh, in response to the Supreme Court decision. He said, I'd rather not talk about homosexuality again, but the world hasn't stopped talking about it, and the Bible hasn't stopped saying what it has always said. So let's not be shrill, and let's not be silent. If you already know what the Bible says about homosexuality, don't forget what the Bible says about all of life and godliness. We can be right about marriage and still wrong about everything else that matters. And if you like most everything else the Bible says, why would you, on this matter of homosexuality, decide the Bible suddenly can't be trusted? If you won't count the cost here, what else will we be willing to sell? The support for homosexual behavior almost always goes hand-in-hand hand with the diluting of robust, hundred-proof orthodoxy, either as the cause or the effect. The spirits which cause one to go wobbly on biblical sexuality are the same spirits which befog the head and heart when it comes to the doctrine of creation, historical accuracy of the Old Testament, the virgin birth, the miracles of Jesus, the resurrection, the second coming, the reality of hell, the plight of those who do not know Christ, the necessity of the new birth, the full inspiration and authority of the Bible, and the centrality of a bloody cross. So marriage is a gospel issue. We need firm conviction so we won't deny Christ. But thirdly, we need kindness so we will not misrepresent Christ, okay? So again, how, how did you react over the last 10 days? What if, what if we were to hear audio of what you said in your house or to your most trusted close friends, some things that you maybe wish would not be overheard in a public context like this? Is there disdain, hatred? Look, what, hate what these liberals have done to our country. Maybe our hearts need to change. I mean, if there's that kind of disdain and hate, they do. So some of us ha don't have any trouble telling it like it is, even if it offends. And there's strength there, conviction. But we need to know that the manner in which we speak is just as much, just as important as the speaking of the truth. So we can actually undo or undermine the very truth that we speak by the way in which we speak it. Do you believe that? 
So listen to a few texts here. The Lord's servant, 2 Timothy 2.24, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Jesus, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Jesus, when he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. Love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you'll be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil, Luke 6, 35. So I think one of the signs of this grace, this, this kindness working its way down into our souls is if the mercy and pity and love and kindness that is commanded of us, commanded of us in these texts characterizes our speech with our most trusted friends. You know, that's where you tend to let your guard down. You say what you're really thinking and feeling. What if we were careful even in those conversations? And please, can I say, please be cautious and wise on how you engage in social media. You represent Christ. That is probably not the place for that argument, okay? Don't foolishly respond to foolishness with more caustic foolishness, okay? But on the other hand, let's not... Shortly after the decision, I found myself praying, Lord, I want to have, would you give me more relationships, more conversations with people that would celebrate this decision? Not because I want to buttonhole anybody into the corner, but I, there's so much opportunity. They need to know a Christian who is convinced that this is true and kind because their caricatures are just as bad as our caricatures. So wouldn't you love to have a relationship where you would have homosexual friends that would say, that's not what Christians are like when they see some of the the caricatures on the the news? I, I have friends. I know. We don't agree, but I know that the person respects and loves me. Let's pray for opportunities like that. And then let's pray for ourselves. Pray for our home groups, pray for our church, our churches in this area, that we would bear the fruit of the Spirit in these conversations and in a way that represents Christ well in our county, okay? So for good or ill, Jesus, like for good or ill, we are Jesus's representatives in our community. So it'll either represent him well or it will misrepresent him. So we need conviction and kindness. Bethel, they have to go together. So we don't need wishy-washy and kind, And we don't need convinced and caustic or convinced and cutting. Not just what we're saying, as important as that is, but also how we're saying it. Gospel truth, gospel spirit. Let me quote Russell Moore again here um, from one of his posts. We must love our neighbors enough to have the confidence of people who who have heard a word from God and the compassion of a people who are on mission with God. We must learn from our Savior, who is neither shocked by the Samaritan woman's sexual sin nor afraid to speak a word of repentance to her conscience. Woman, go get your husband and come here, is our model. An unashamed assessment of sin and an unrestrained invitation to come to Jesus. We must stand with conviction and with kindness, with truth and with grace. We must hold to our views and love those who hate us for them. 
We must not only speak Christian truths, we must speak, I love this, with a Christian accent. We must say what Jesus has revealed, and we must say those things the way Jesus does, with mercy and with an invitation to new life. So we're actually going to work on what this looks like and sounds like in the next few weeks on Wednesday nights. Okay? We're going to get really practical. So there's no wanna. You can skip the night of the pool. You know, come on over seven to eight, and we're going to work on this. Okay? And we're going to pray. So we'll take the front half of prayer meeting for the next few weeks and work on. Because you know what? We're going to do some things like considering the difference between talking among ourselves so that we don't compromise and talking to those who don't share our beliefs in the Bible and its authority. Okay, so, so if someone doesn't care about Romans 1 and what it says, how do I continue the conversation? Or dealing with really practical issues like, should I attend my coworker's same-sex wedding that I just got invited to? Or maybe I'm an owner of a small business like, Some who've been in the news over wedding cakes and photography recently. What what does this mean for me? So let me just, most of this is going to happen there, but let me just give one example of conviction with kindness. This is just hypothetical, although I've had some conversations along these lines. But let's just say you're asked something like, so what did you think of the Supreme Court ruling? What are you going to say? Are you in favor of the, the marriage ruling? Are you going to kind of try to just squirt out of that one? Oh, don't go there. Hey, the Phillies. Are you going to start going off with a few cherry-picked anecdotes about Bruce Jenner and where things are headed? I think that's probably going to be the most helpful thing, especially if they don't agree with where you are. What what about something like this? You know, I'm deeply concerned and grieved over the Supreme Court ruling. I don't know that if in your mind that automatically demonizes me or makes me a bigot. I I don't hate gay people. I'm grieved also by some of the horrible treatment many of them have endured, often at the hands of so-called Christians. But I believe with all my heart that the God of the Bible made the world. And he made us, and he designed us, and he knows what's best for us. So, you know what? We all kick against that design. We're all born with a bentness and a brokenness. You don't have to teach a two-year-old to disobey you. So it's, it's not just homosexuals. It's not just homosexuality. We're all sexually disordered, and, and disordered in a whole lot of other ways. And we need to be redeemed and reshaped and reformed and Jesus can do that. And you share the gospel with them, maybe. Or you respond to how they respond. And then you can say something like this. Now, the gospel actually means that I will love everyone, even my enemy. And it actually makes me tolerant. The gospel makes me tolerant. You see, the modern definition of tolerance is not even a coherent concept. You need to tell people this because they're just buying a bill of goods from the media. It means something like unconditional affirmation. That's what they mean when they use tolerance in the media oftentimes. Now, I don't know many people who view racists that way with unconditional affirmation. You don't need to tolerate those you unconditionally affirm. 
you can only learn to tolerate those with whom you disagree. So you have to be allowed to disagree to have tolerance. So then you can humbly point out that this is a call, this, this call for tolerance needs to cut both ways. So the political discussion is so polarized that people who believe in the traditional definition of marriage are automatically labeled as a bigot. Does that, does that seem fair to you? Do you understand? Do you see what I'm saying? It's just an example. So again, we'll pursue that more on Wednesday nights. But finally, one last point before we come and participate in the table. <laughs> this is where... Um, so one of the immediate thoughts was, I want to pray for opportunities because I want way more conversations with some of these folks in this area. Um, I want to understand them. I want to listen, and I want them to understand where we are as Christians and why we believe what we believe, and I want to do it with Christ-like kindness, okay? Um, but at the end of the day, as much as there's been a lot of craziness, and boy, there's some crazy things, I think, that are com- coming down the pike, you know what? Nothing's really changed. God's still sovereign and he's on the throne. The gospel's still good news. It's the power of God and his salvation. So guess what? Yes, marriage is a gospel issue, but the gospel is the issue. And it always will be until the day we die. Jesus is still saving sinners and the gospel is still the power of God and his salvation for all who believe. Even, maybe this would happen. Someone who's, who's undergone a sex change operation, you're obviously going to have all kinds of ethical questions. Who knows what to do with some of these things? But people that are transgender that have gone through sex change operation, they get converted. Beautiful picture of the grace of God. Okay, there, there's nobody beyond the reach of God's grace. And guess what? Even self-righteous religious people can get saved. Isn't that amazing? That's a miracle. And everybody in between. So the goal is not merely winning a debate. It's not merely winning a debate. It's winning people to Christ so that they can know the true love and redemption and freedom and peace and life that only Jesus can give. So we should not look at these people that differ with us with hate and look what you're stealing, my freedoms, my... No. We look at them with with compassion and love. How can we bless and speak truth and, and care for these people and be kind to them? So, the gospel is and always will be the issue. Now we have the undeserved privilege of celebrating that love. This is what's going to keep us stable and rooted and grounded, give us ballast in the midst of, of cultural winds that are blowing hard is, is the gospel. That's not going to change. Jesus isn't going to change. Our justification, our peace with God, our relationship with God that we did not deserve but that he came after us and rescued us from our infidelity That's what's going to keep us stable. That's going to be a source of of grace and truth so we can be strong with conviction and kind with all kinds of of issues, especially gospel issues. So let's prepare our hearts to share in the table of our Lord. So think back through the message, Ephesians 5, your marriage, if you're married, is there some repentance as you come to the table? Some, Some heart work you need to to do 
with Jesus and then with your spouse, this table, guess what, is a reminder in that context that there's grace available. God gives grace to the humble. How about some conviction over your lack of conviction? Well, take that to Jesus and eat this table as a reminder that there is soul-strengthening grace that's ours in Christ and be encouraged to eat and drink in remembrance of your Savior that came after you when you were running away. He certainly can come after you and strengthen you when you're backpedaling. How about kindness? Maybe you have not reflected that kind of Christ-like kindness. Take it to Jesus and then eat and drink and say, grace for my sharp tongue. Oh, would you please season me and fill me with your spirit so that I bear the fruit of the spirit in the way that I speak. And then, again, the gospel, is it the, is it the main thing for you? Is it, is it the main thing, come what may? Let's pray. Oh, God, we are so thankful that all of human history is about a marriage, and not just any marriage, but a marriage where we were the unfaithful one running the other way, and you came after us and rescued us and redeemed us and set us free and made us yours and covenanted yourself to us forever. Please fill us with joy and thanksgiving and grace as we remember your death and help us to be faithful, to not deny you, but to represent you well until you come again. And so as we have eaten your word, help us to eat and drink these tokens of your love and may it strengthen us in our inner being so that we would know your love that surpasses knowledge and be better prepared to follow Jesus this week. We ask it in his name. Amen.